The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. We hope that our podcast is giving you a message of hope and help. That is our whole purpose in doing this podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Also, if you could check out our YouTube channel and give us a thumbs up there, that would be great. Thank you so much. Today, we are interviewing a gentleman named Danny Strong. Danny Strong is a multi-award-winning writer, director, actor, producer, who is the creator showrunner and director of the hit Hulu series Dope Sick, starring Michael Keaton and Rosario Dawson. He was also the co-creator, executive producer, writer, and director for the hit Fox series Empire. He also wrote the screenplays for the films Recount, Game Change, The Butler, Rebel in the Rye, which he also directed, and co-wrote The Hunger Hunger Games, Mockingjay, Part 1 and 2. He won two Primetime Emmy Awards, two WGA Awards, a Peabody, and a Golden Globe Award for Game Change, and earned a Primetime Emmy nomination for Recount. As an actor, he's appeared in major roles in a number of iconic TV shows and films, including Billions, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Gilmore Girls, Justified, Girls, and Mad Men. The reason why we've invited Danny to be on the podcast is because of the series Dope Sick, which tells the story of the unethical and criminal marketing by Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. I am excited to hear about how Danny became involved in that project and some stories involved with it. So without further ado, let's talk to Danny Strong. So Danny Strong, filmmaker par excellence, thank you for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, awesome. I'm excited. I'm really excited to have you here. But Danny, tell us just a little bit about about your background, kind of like where you grew up, what got you interested in making films, you know, kind of what led you down the path to make Dope Sick? Um, what led me on the path to make Dope Sick? Well, how far do you want me to go back? You can go back as far as you want. Like, where did you grow up? Did you do, did you films as a kid? Where did you get involved? No, so I grew up in Manhattan Beach, California which is a, uh, it's about an hour south of Los Angeles. Um, And when I was a kid, it's a very wealthy community now, uh, but it wasn't when I was a kid. It was a very um, sort of middle to lower middle class, sleepy beach town uh, with surfers and skateboarders and volleyball players. And that was sort of, uh, uh, that was sort of the environment I grew up in. And um, I was always interested in acting um, and did high school theater and then was a college uh, with the theater school for college at USC. So my path was always uh, as an actor. And then I uh, started writing when I was about 25. So I, when I graduated college, I actually started booking jobs as an actor and, and worked all through my 20s as an actor, uh, but wanted to do something else as well. Because uh, I didn't find it as fulfilling as I thought it would be, <laughs> sort of like the, the dream comes true. I'm I'm supporting myself as an actor, um, but so I started writing, and then uh, and that was a big focus of my attention. And then I sold my first script as a writer when I was 32. So it took me seven years of writing scripts before I finally sold my first project, which was 
the movie Recount, um, about the Florida Recount that that was the HBO movie uh, Recount that starred Kevin Spacey and Tom Wilkinson and Laura Dern. And the film um, did very well, won the Emmy for Best TV Movie and Best Director. And I was nominated for Best uh, Writer. And that was sort of my big kind of breakthrough as a writer was that project. You know, that that's awesome. And I can, <clears throat> excuse me, I can relate because our son moved to um, LA to be an actor and he kind of, he didn't book acting gigs because he realized about nine months into it that what he wanted to do was write. So I kind of know that story of you write and you write and you, you know, you just keep writing. Yeah. It, it became sort of therapy for me to get my mind off my auditions. Uh, Cause it was this creative outlet that I could do. And I did pretty well as an actor. I was on a number of really great shows during that time period, guest starring and recurring, but nonetheless, uh, I, even though I was working all the time, I was still unemployed all the time as an actor. So it it was, uh, it was a great outlet for me that eventually, and I, and I knew by the time I was 28 or 29 that I wanted it to take over. Uh, but I didn't know how long it would take. And and then it was when I was 32 is when I sold the first thing, like I said. Yeah, it's not bad. That's only four years. That's that's not Uh, bad. Seven years. It was seven years of writing. I started before I sold my first thing. That's that's right. You did say that. I just meant four years from when you went, okay, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. Okay. So, um, what then led you to dope sick? How did, how did that all come about? So I, um, I had written and directed a film about a young J.D. Salinger called Rebel in the Rye that got into Sundance. And a producer had seen the film, this guy named John Goldwyn, and he really loved the movie. And he came to me and said, do you want to write and direct a movie on the opioid crisis is your next thing? And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, I was looking to do something that was mm, sort of a modern day piece of muckraking like I had done with Recount or this other movie that I'd written called Game Change, which was about John McCain picking Sarah Palin, another HBO election movie. And I wanted to do something similar to those projects. Or Partly because of the J.D. Salinger piece was a period piece, and I just wanted to do something that was sort of a hot button modern day story. And I thought, well, opioid crisis, that's exactly it. That's exactly that. So I started researching it. I was just going to say, were you aware of the opioid crisis? Because I, I wonder read, Yeah, this was 2018, I think January-ish, 2018. And I had read the New Yorker article on the Sacklers that Patrick Radin Keefe had written. It had really blown the story up, specifically the Sackler family's ownership of Purdue Pharma and Purdue Pharma's role in igniting the opioid crisis. So... I started, and, and, and that's what he had wanted to do, John Goldwyn. He said, let's, let's do a movie about the Sacklers. So that was how it was presented to me. So then when I started researching it, I was horrified by the actions of this company and shocked, stunned. I couldn't believe what they had did, the extent of the lies, the extent of the deception. And I also thought, I think this is a lot bigger than just the Sacklers. Um, I, I thought there's so many elements to this story that I don't want to do just a story about a rich family uh, that's running this company that's lying through their teeth, right? I thought that's one part of the story for sure and fascinating, but but it seemed to me that there was an approach like the movie Traffic, um, and that was my idea uh, uh, of it in the earliest stages was, oh, this will be like Traffic, but the opioid crisis, where we're going to be at all of these different levels or, or areas of the story 
Um, and then when I read about Rick Mountcastle's uh, investigation and, and John Brownlee, the U.S. attorney, his boss, the case they brought, and that the DEA also had a case, I thought, well, that's a really great way into this story because as an active investigation, you're now working in a genre that has crowd-pleasing qualities to it, which is a mystery, investigators looking for clues, uh, a crime being, being committed. And I thought, wow, a story like this really needs that kind of engine because the story itself of the opioid crisis and of addiction is so harrowing and, 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 and awful and horrifying and depressing. And so how can this piece not get completely weighed down by that? Um, because no one would make it, right? So how can right. you a, do that story and tell that story, but not make it, um, how can there be another engine in there that can have some kind of entertainment value as well? And I thought, oh, okay, well, I could do it as a thriller. And what's great about that sort of way to do it is that what these investigators are exposing are the crimes of Purdue Pharma. So it's a great way to indict the company that created the opioid crisis uh, by showing the investigators uncovering how they did it. Uh, and then I thought, well, but we have to have the victims as well um, and, and just tell that story. So then I thought, okay, well, that's, and that's where I came up with the whole traffic approach, like I said. And it was like, okay, so we'll have the victims, we'll have the investigators, we'll have Purdue Pharma. And, and that was, that was sort of, and then I thought, oh, it's way, this is too much material for a movie. <laughs> and I went back to John Goldwyn and said, um, what about a limited series? Why don't we, why don't we do it as, and he loved the idea. And, uh, and then, and then I went and I sold the project to a studio I had a deal at, which was called 20th Studios, which are part of the Disney empire. And then here's where the story gets a little weird or a little, I don't know where's the word, but <laughs> I sell the show to 20th. Uh, a lot of what I just explained to you is what I said to them, although I had more worked out and I had these, you know, more storylines worked out. And then another division at the same, at Disney, but not 20th, but the sister studio called Fox 21 doesn't know that I've sold this project to 20th. And they go and buy the book Dope Sick in a big bidding war. Oh, wow. And I read about it on deadline. So I literally read on deadline that my sister studio has bought a rival project to the project that a month ago I had just sold to the other studio. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. And those studios have merged since then, probably because of things like that. Right. Yes. There, yes. Sort of. Um, so so they asked me if I would team up with with. Uh, Fox 21 and with the book Dope Sick. Um, and I said, well, why don't, why don't you send me the book? <laughs> like, why, why don't I read this book? So I read the book and it hadn't come out yet. Um, so I didn't even know the book existed when this was all taking place. I read the book. I thought the book was really wonderful. I thought it was really powerful. And then I had a meeting with Beth Macy uh, and I loved her. I thought, oh, she's terrific. And, and, uh, to have an expert, she really wanted to be in the writer's room full time. And I thought, well, I have an expert on the subject in the room, the full time. And then I pitched her the pitch that I sold the 20th and she loved it. She thought, well, that's terrific. You know, it totally captures the spirit of what my book is. Uh, and then she had this producer named Warren Littlefield, who's a, just one of the great TV producers. So we all merged together. And uh, and that was how the, that was how Dope Sick uh, was sort of off to the races. 
That's great. It's a fabulous story. And, and I, I love the story about the two kind of sister studios going, wait a second, we're both going after the same thing. You know, I will tell you that um, your podcast and some of the other ones that we've done with Beth Macy and Ed Bish and uh, people who are involved in the story, I, when I say to people, you need to watch Dope Sick, I always say, if it were just a, it would, if it were just a really, really good drama, um, like a made-up story, it would be scary. But the fact that it's true, it's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. And um, I, I know, at least I got my son and his wife to watch it because if you if you don't watch it, you don't know. You don't you you really don't know. Yeah. Even if you have a loved one who's addicted to opioids, you know, part of my hope with with shedding the light on dope sick and shedding the light on the book is that you know people need to know this story they need to know what happened and i like to think if i had lost a child to opioid addiction that this would help me somewhat understand how this sort of thing came about um okay so now you've got you've got the green light you're moving ahead Tell us some stories about making the film, what you learned while you were making the film. Well, I never stopped learning. Uh, I'm, I'm still keep learning even now that it's over and, and, um, and new facts continue to arise. Um, it was an incredibly rewarding experience um, because it did, we did have a sense of mission on it. Um, at the time, the Sacklers, they'd been exposed by that terrific New Yorker article, but, and then Nan Golden was conducting her protest, but there still wasn't this sort of visceral understanding of what that company actually did. And there was a sense of, um, we're going to give them the trial that they never got, that they've gotten away with this, but we're going to show people what actually happened. But then there were some other you know, just as important missions behind the piece um, to redefine the under the, the sort of general understanding of opioid addiction, um, where people view it as a moral weakness, as opposed to no, these people's brains have been hijacked, literally right. hijacked, and they cannot live without it, or they're in so much pain, they think they're gonna die, yep. and they will turn their back on everything in their life to not experience that pain. And that's the word dope sick, right? That's where the word dope sick comes from. Yep. That's why I love the title so much uh, because it captures what this truly is at, at its core. And to understand that is pretty profound for some people, uh, that is particularly the response to the show. I've gotten responses from people who, who, ha who had gone through an opioid use disorder uh, and, and they're like, oh, my God, this is what happened to me. They did, you know, or, or relatives of like, I wish I would have known this is what my mother or my brother or my sister or child were actually going through because I would have approached it differently. Or maybe I'm approaching it differently now. And I've gotten uh, messages on Twitter about people reaching out to kids that they haven't spoken to in years because they had so much contempt and anger for their child, as opposed to realizing from the show, oh, no my child's brain was hijacked. Um, and so all of that's been really profound and quite moving. And then the other thing that was- Did you expect a, that just as a side note? No, did you, you no. Didn't, no this, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't even know what to expect. I didn't, you don't, when you put something like this together, you don't know if anyone's ever going to watch it. 
Uh, um, so you're literally, you're just, you're like, I'm just going to do the best I can and create something that I think's great. And, and, you know, I try to, one of my philosophies as a writer and as a director producer is to just aim the bar really, really high, like try to hit a home run. So if you don't quite get a home run, maybe you'll get a triple <laughs> and that's really yeah. good. Right. Yeah. It's always sort of how I approach things is, is and that's by uh, over the years by approaching things where I didn't have a high bar, where I was trying to hit a double and I didn't even get to first base, you know, yep. and it's very unrewarding. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's sort of like aim big. Um, and, and the fact that it it's, it's had the impact that it's had has been amazing. And it's what I love to do in, in the things that I've worked on. It's the most satisfying part of anything I've ever worked on are the the ones projects where it's the most exciting for me aren't necessarily the ones that have made the most money or have had the biggest ratings but have made the most noise um that have become news stories that have become in some ways a piece of activism or controversial because they're creating a firestorm of discussion uh i love that 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 is literally uh the most exciting thing for me and and dopesick has done it in a way of as big as anything I've ever worked on of, of the nonstop news stories about it. And, and just, you know, those, those messages that I was talking about of, of how it's changed people's lives has been, has been so profound and moving and rewarding on, on so many different levels. I, I, I really applaud you, Danny. I do. And, and, and it's obvious when there's a series like that, that is as impactful as it is that you were just all about the money. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's very obvious with with what you were doing. I think that's what really makes um, a filmmaker successful is when they're doing it because it's something that they're passionate about. It's yeah. why we do the podcast because we're passionate about this yeah. subject. Yeah. You know, um, I you know, and another thing, and believe me, I I never get critical in these things because I don't want to. But I know that um, at least one person that had emailed me and said something like, "It's you know it." It, the dope sick is dramatized or whatever, or it's not like, you know, it's not a documentary. And here's, here is my response to that, Danny. What you dealt with in terms of subject matter in dope sick, and this is my opinion, is pure evil on the part of the, of Richard Sackler and some of the individuals at, at Purdue Pharma. People can't confront that. Okay. So when, it, when it's just a down and dirty documentary i think a lot of people cannot necessarily confront that but the fact that you had fabulous actors with fabulous performance kudos to michael keaton winning yeah, his incredible. golden globe yeah, and incredible. you know the fact that you you made it entertaining if you will even though you did not lessen the the crisis that we are facing with the opioid epidemic if that makes sense yeah of course okay. of course okay. Yeah, no, I mean, and look, that would be the biggest criticism of it. If in fact it did that, if it cheapened it or made it seem trivial or used it as entertainment in a way that sort of betrayed the true horror of what happened. But the but what it does is it it's there to explain and and uh, shine a light on that horror of what yep. happened and that evil that you're talking about. Yep. You are listening to the addiction podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com 
or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Uh, and the sort of the dramatization I, uh, criticism is a very legitimate criticism if the piece is bad, you right. know, or if <laughs> Good the point. piece is unfair, yeah. uh, or if the piece is inaccurate in a way that becomes irresponsible. Good point. Uh, those, those are, well, well then that's a, a fair criticism, uh, but that hasn't been the criticism of it, the show. It's not the you case know, the with the show. The show has been that it's fantastic and people yes. are loving it and are, and it's sort of blowing their minds as far as the information they're getting. Exactly. Um, so there, so that, that hasn't been, you know, I, I've done a number of these projects at this point, the true life, you know, nonfiction stories, those two ones I mentioned, recount and game change. Yep. And those were incredibly accurate mm-hmm. uh, pieces uh, still with some dramatization, but the, but the, they're very responsible, so much integrity, very accurate. And the people that want to discredit it, they're just going to discredit it. And they're going to try to discredit it in a way where they're not going to try and pick it apart, uh, which is what I thought they would do, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm crossing my T's and dotting my I's and I had all these checking my facts. (laughs) Yeah. And I had many consultants on this one too. But what I've learned is, is that what they just say is it's all lies. It's a dramatization. They try to use the fact that it's a dramatization to discredit the entire thing. Uh, and, and that's uh, a common sort of technique I've, I've encountered. And I think that that is, that is a, such a fallacy because, as I say, I think the dramatization makes it more, um, oh, I hate to say entertaining, but, you know, it makes it more something that people are going to want to watch. And maybe they came in because, oh, Michael Keaton's in it or Peter Sarsgaard is in it. And, but when they leave it, that's not that's not going to be the impression. That's not the impression you get. I watched the very first episode and I said to my husband, that's it. We have to get some of these people on the podcast because this is a story that we have to cover in what we do because it's, it, it, we need to shed the light. And that's what you did. You didn't just shed the light. You took a spotlight and you put it directly on Purdue Pharma and directly on the Sacklers and it had to be done. And you did it in such a professional way artistic and aesthetic way, if you will, you know, so that it is such a fabulous mini series and it deserves all the kudos. And oh, thank you. I, I really hope it wins even more awards. I was so excited when I, I hope saw it. I hope it does too. I'm with you. Yeah. But, but not just for you for no, because, yeah. because when I'm it wins awards, everyone. people are going to watch it. Do you know? Oh, 100%. It, and it's, it, and it, it has to be watched. Or at the end of the day, you know, is to shine a light on the project and, and because they're, they're, um, 
they're uh, it's a subjective competition. It's not like the World Series where the best team won. Right. It's truly just subjective and people's taste at the end of the day. And and what they do is they just bring more attention to the projects themselves. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, and and this one's it it really did make a lot of noise and people are it continues to grow. Uh, people continue to come to it. That's sort of one of the exciting things about streaming and the world of the world we're living in and entertainment is it's yep. not about that week or that month. It could be yep. a six month, a one year period um, where, where, where people come to a project. Yep. And I think, I think this one is definitely going to live on for quite a while. And I said to, um, we had Cynthia Munger, Munger on the podcast. Are you, do you know Cynthia? Have you ever I met don't. her? Okay. She's, um, she has a, a son who's addicted to opioids. I think he's now clean and sober, if I remember correctly. And she's very involved with the parents who are, you know, demonstrating in Washington, D.C. and are all about this. And, you know, as I've said, and I'm going to say it again, people are going to get tired of hearing me saying it. The Sacklers may have enough money to where they can win in the courtroom, but they are never going to win in the public arena. And with the internet and with series like Dope Sick, they're just, they're not going to win and they can't hide anymore. And I think that that's mm -hmm. important because I think for decades, you know, they were hidden. I mean, I didn't know that Arthur Sackler was behind the whole Valium epidemic. I didn't know it, you know, and I think that um, people are getting wiser. They have to. You know, well, that was a big mission of the show. What you're talking about, it was exactly kind of the core purpose of the show, which is people need to know what they did. Uh, their crimes need to be documented for history. And when I was and when I first started it, and this was before I even teamed up with Beth Macy, I had read that they were now because they had been exposed in medical circles in the U.S. by 2018 and opioid prescribing was dropping significantly. They were now using these same techniques internationally and the same dishonest, manipulative, deceitful lies. Uh, they were going to country after country. And so I viewed the show as a warning to the world that Purdue Pharma is coming to addict you. They're coming to lie to you. They're coming to sell you their poison. And that was it was a major motivation for the piece for me in the early days was as an international warning um, of what this company and what these people are doing. By the way, I've never done I've never had a project where the goal was like, what are we what are you doing? Uh, an international warning. Yeah. Um, but that, that's literally <laughs> what it what, what it was. And, and I think that's happening now. I think we're we're getting a lot of worldwide play and, and really need to give a shout out to Hulu for making it. This yeah. wasn't some no-brainer. No one wanted to make it. Everyone mm -hmm. just thought, even with me telling them, no, I'm going to execute it as an investigative thriller for a huge portion of it, the response was, yeah, but it's still too depressing. It's still the opioid crisis. It's still too dark. And, and everyone passed. And then Hulu stepped up and said, we'll do it. And, you know, it seems like a no-brainer now because the show's successful, but it was not at, the, at, the, at that early stage um, when we were trying to set it up. I, I get that. And I, I agree. Hulu definitely needs to be commended for putting it together or, or, or greenlining it and helping you yeah. because it, I think it is doing what you expected it to do. And not only is I think, not only is it giving an international warning, but, you know, people need to understand that this isn't just the case with Oxycontin. 
This is likely the case in most of the drugs that get prescribed, and it is up to us as individuals and patients and consumers to question, you know, to question these things and, you know, and get the research. And if you ever thought that you could just completely 100% trust your doctor with everything that your doctor tells you, well, this series is going to tell you maybe not that, maybe not, maybe that's not such a good idea. You know, and it wasn't that the doctor involved was a bad man. We know that there are pain pill doctors. We've talked about some of them on the podcast who were all about the money and that's all they did. I mean, here you had a doctor who actually really cared about his patients, but he was lied to flat out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, the whole thing, you know, I think the perception of it pre, pre-dope sick or, or other types of, you know, stuff that's come out like this was that that it was fueled by, you know, Purdue Pharma lying, but also these dishonest pill mills. And that we have the opioid crisis because of these dishonest pill mills. Now, they certainly were a part of it, but but there was way more prescribing by doctors who thought that they were doing the right thing, uh, that that was more prevalent than the pill mills. And a lot of pill mills were shut down. A lot of people went to prison uh, over it. Um, but there were an enormous number of doctors they just believed uh, what they were sold by Purdue. And, and it was the FDA label that said that it was less addictive than other drugs, uh, combined with article after article that were coming out in 1996, 1997, about what a breakthrough um, this was. So I personally was fascinated by how that happened because in 2018, when I'm researching 2019, it feels like, oh, well, of course, this is a very addictive drug. How could a doctor possibly think this? Uh, and then when you start to peel uh, the layers back and then you see the level of deception and manipulation uh, by having independent pain organizations you know, being quoted in articles when in fact they weren't independent, they were financed by Purdue Pharma. And then right. it was almost like an elaborate shell game that worked its way all the way to the highest levels of the US government. Um, it, it's a level of deception, uh, and it's it's diabolical, uh, and it's unbelievable how successful it was. Uh, at the end of the day, how uh, something that was so fundamentally dishonest that an addictive opioid was in fact not addictive um, is is pretty mind boggling what they were able to achieve. So what I was going to say, and I, I again, when I've described the series, and I've told people you have to watch this series, so. Steve and I, just as background, we had a marketing company. We have a marketing company. And we were introduced to the whole medium of podcasting. And so, so well, I can do that. I can talk to people. I can interview people. That would be great. And then someone suggested that we uh, podcast about something we were passionate about. And even though we don't have a close family member that is addicted and you know, or we haven't been addicted. We just felt that we needed to take responsibility similar to the way you did when you did this film. So that's Mm -hmm. why we do this. But what I have said to people about this is that Purdue was brilliant in their marketing. OMG. Creating pain associations, like you said, um, getting uh, the guy who said, oh, it's pseudo addiction and the solution for pseudo addiction is to up the dose. I mean, I, it's it's so diabolical, but it's it, it's brilliant. It's just, anyway, 
Well, that was why I I wanted to show a flashback of Arthur Sackler testifying before the Kefauver Committee um, in 1962 to show, oh, no, this is the family business. This is they've been doing this for decades. And in fact, it was all created by. The, the famous uncle who's not even alive during uh, their, their, their launch of OxyContin, but he had created all of these dishonest techniques that they used to, to market and, and, um, and sell OxyContin. Yep. It's, yeah, it's horrific. The, the story is horrific. Um, Danny, I, I was just going to say, I was going to give you a hard time because I was going to say, now what you need to do is continue to follow along with the Sacklers and make another movie, but that's, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. And the okay. only reason I said that, I was looking up, uh, when I watched the series, I started looking up the names of some of the people involved, like some of the executives at Purdue and the guy who created the pseudo addiction, and they're still in the business, and they're still, they're still peddling the same lies, um, just maybe not through Purdue, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, David Haddix, who's the 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 godfather of pseudo addiction, um, that's one of those that I I still have a hard time understanding how it was so effective. You know, when I talk to because um, it seems ridiculous in a 2019 uh, yeah. lens, right? It seems kind of absurd and almost like satire. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, but I I saw uh, talking to a few doctors about it. And they both said the same thing about pseudo addiction was we just um, we weren't pain specialists. We were general practitioners. So it, it seemed like it was, you know, something that we just didn't know about because we hadn't uh, hadn't studied it, you know, as a specialist. That's interesting. Uh, and, and then it was a world of specialists. This was a legitimate phrase if you were a specialist in that world. Right. Um, and, and so much of their manipulative phrases, uh, breakthrough pain, you know, pseudo addiction. Um, that, that, individualized that was, dosing. Individual, individualized the dose, right? That that's, those were, it, it was, there was this massive pain movement at the time yeah. and pain was being redefined and Jayco had changed their standards for, for what doctors should do in opioid prescribing and hospitals now were pushing opioids really aggressively because they didn't want negative reviews from patients that had left and that, and that um, if you left in pain, it could have been a, a legal liability if you were still in pain, right? So there were so many things that were happening simultaneously at this time, but it, they weren't organically happening. It was all uh, manipulated by the pharmaceutical industry itself. Yep. Very much spearheaded by by the actions of Purdue. Yep. And the Sacklers. Amazing. Danny, I can't thank you enough, not only for talking to us today, but for even doing this project. What what you've created with Dope Sick is going to save lives. It just is. And it's going to mend families, as you said, who did not understand or do not understand that Dope Sick is a real physical thing that happens to addicts. It's not just that they, they can't just go, Oh, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to take it anymore. And I think that in so many aspects, your mini series just, it's really good. I'm really um, glad you did it. I, I really appreciate you saying that. And You're- it's for me, it's certainly been one of the most rewarding things I've ever worked on. And, and uh, I'm really proud of the piece and I'm really proud of the entire company of people that came together to make it, you know, there's so many people that were involved and, and, uh, 
and and Hulu for financing it uh, yeah. when no one else would. You're you're a rock star, Danny. I mean, really, oh, and man. and you've got to be in demand now and super busy. And I just I cannot thank you enough for being willing to talk to us today because this is such an important aspect of the whole addiction pandemic. Thank Absolutely. you. My pleasure, and thank you for shining a light on it and on this issue with the podcast. So right and, back at you. And we will continue. Please do. <laughs> I believe this is the last interview that we have that focuses on the Hulu miniseries Dope Sick, based on a book written by Beth Macy. And the miniseries is directed and created by um, Danny Strong that we just heard from. If you have not watched Dope Sick, I would rather that you watch that than listen to our next podcast. It's that important. And it is... So eye-opening that you need to know what's in that series. It is, it is shedding a light on some of the most unethical, diabolical, legal actions taken by a pharmaceutical company and a family that has been doing it for decades and um, has raked in billions from unethical, illegal, and diabolical marketing. So there you go. That's Dope Sick. Um, I will give you my pitch once again. If you or someone you know needs to get into treatment, please don't wait. Please do it now. And we'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.